part of Scripture. We looked at what Scripture means, what Scripture is about. Um, the analogy that we gave was that Scripture is roads, and all those roads lead to Christ. That no matter what road that you get on in the Bible, that road is going to lead you to one place, or I guess in particular one person, and that person is Christ. This week, we'll, we're going to, and that's, that's one of the things that we'll do, is we'll kind of take these same ideas of geography and look at them in a little bit different way, almost as if a typographer were to be looking at a map. You know, when you, when you put together a map, some of the maps that even that I've, I've had to deal with in the industry that I work in, you've got maps that what they'll do is the first they'll put all the elevations on there, the hills, the different things, the landmarks. Then they'll go in, they'll add the roads. And then specifically for me, they'll go in and add the locations where the pipe has been laid and where the wells have been drilled. And that's kind of what we'll do with, the, with this, this course that we're going through, is we'll kind of get a map set out where last time we made, I was seeing all the names of all the roads, but we saw that all the roads are going to lead to Christ. This week we'll be looking at what's termed as the lay of the land. And in particular, we're going to look at the streams that we would see in Scripture. And if, uh, real quickly, Samuel, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter number 1. And Brother Charles, if you'll real quickly turn to Matthew chapter number 1. So, Samuel, you close? Well, Charles, you close to Matthew chapter number one? Yeah. Turn one page back. What does it say? The New Testament? Turn one page back from Genesis chapter number one. What does it say? It says the Old Testament. So... The point is, our Bible has been split into two testaments. And that's the first answer on your paperwork. We see that in the page before Genesis 1 and the page before Matthew 1, they both contain the word testament. The word testament specifically, it comes from a Hebrew word, which I won't pronounce or even attempt to pronounce. But that Hebrew word means Covenant, yes. Yes, the word. So the so testament and covenant are the two are the two blanks that I've put in on these papers, and that's what we'll be looking at tonight. So we'll be taking our text from Jeremiah thirty one, verse thirty one through verse number thirty four. And this is the basis for the reasons behind. Our scriptures being set into two testaments or into two covenants. Because in one we see shadows and in one we see substance. And uh, Jeremiah 31, verse number 31 through, through verse number 34, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, said the Lord, but this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their heart in in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord and they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So in this scripture specifically, we see a prophesying of what we talked about last week. There was a promise made in this scripture. That promise was that there would come a day that even though Israel had broken the covenant that God made with them, there would come a day that God would make a new covenant with them. And that's the basis on which we're going to continue down through these texts. So the three things that we'll cover tonight is what a biblical covenant is. We're going to see if the concept of a biblical covenant flows through Scripture. And we're going to see how the concept of the covenant helps us to understand the Scriptures. So first of all, what is a biblical covenant? The biblical covenant is the form or the unifying thread of God's saving actions throughout Scripture, beginning explicitly with Adam and being fulfilled in Christ and ratified by the blood of Christ. Brother Ricky, if you don't mind looking at Luke chapter 22 and verse number 20. And uh, Brother Charles, if you don't mind, Hebrews 8 and verse number 13. And we're going to look at these two texts in reference to what a biblical covenant is. And we're going to come back to these two texts in our second point. Yes, sir. Likewise, also after supper, likewise also the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed." And brother Charles, Hebrews eight thirteen. And that he said, "A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that that which decayed." And waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So we saw in Jeremiah, we saw that there was promised that God would make a new covenant with his people. And we see from the text in Luke and the text in Hebrews that that covenant saw its fulfillment. That new covenant was found in Christ and was ratified which is a word we'll look into here shortly, with his blood. 
We saw that in Luke 22. He said, take the cup. And that's where we get the Lord's Supper, which we'll cover here shortly. He said, take the cup. This is the sign of the new covenant. What Christ was saying, he said, this new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of, it's getting ready to happen. This is the sign of it. I'm going to go ahead and give you this ahead of time so you can look at this, and this is the sign. And again, we're going to get to all this, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. But as we work down through what a biblical covenant is, a covenant is a legal commitment between two living persons. So in order for a covenant to happen, there has to be two persons, and they both have to be alive. If you make a covenant with a dead person, that covenant's already broken. If you try and make a promise to a dead person, your promise is worthless. So it has to be a living person, but it is a legal covenant. And one place where we can see this is in marriage. That's what the text said. God said, I was an husband unto them. God even uses marriage as a picture of this covenant. When I got married, I said, I really don't even remember all what I said, but it was probably important. Um, <laughs> but I said, you know, the whole for richer, for poor, sickness and health, as long as you both shall live, I do. That's covenant. I was telling my wife, or what, would, who would shortly become my wife, that no matter whether she was sick or healthy, whether she was rich or poor, whether she was mean or not mean, ugly, not ugly, nothing, none of that mattered. None of these tangible things mattered. I promised to her that I would be her husband, and she promised to me that she would be my wife. And that's what we see in Scripture. We see a legal covenant. We can even see this with David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan made a covenant between each other. They made a covenant saying, I'll watch after your kids and you'll watch after my kids. Now, Jonathan ended up dying, but David kept that covenant he made with Jonathan. And that's a picture of what we're going to begin to see played out in this scripture. A covenant is a committed relationship. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, he said, that's where God makes statement. He said, I, the Lord, am one. And he makes the statement that they would be his people and that they would have to listen to what he said. He goes on in that text to say that I'm going to command you some things and you're going to keep those commandments. That was part of that covenant that God made with his people. Just like, again, just like I made a covenant with my wife, I have to be committed to those things. There's going to be mornings that we wake up and we're both ill, but it's going to take a commitment to keep that covenant. Most of the marriages that end up ending in divorce, it's because one party or the other ceased to be committed to each other. And over and over in Scripture, the book of Judges we see a people who aren't committed to God. But a covenant is a committed relationship. Thirdly, we see that a covenant is a sovereignly instituted bond. In Scripture, it wasn't a, it wasn't a brokering. God didn't say, well, this is what I want from you. And then the covenant 
other end of that says, well, how about we change this and change this and change that? Again, going back to our example of marriage, we didn't stand at the marriage altar and, and start bartering with each other on how we were going to keep that covenant. The reason being is because marriage is a sovereignly instituted covenant. God has said, man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto himself a wife, and they will become one flesh. It says that from the beginning, God did not intend for there to be a divorce, but he gave a bill of divorcements because of the hardness of their heart. God said that wasn't even my intention to begin with. It was to be a picture of what he was doing with his people. The whole purpose of marriage was to be a picture of God's relationship with his people. That's the reason our marriages should be pictures of God's relationships with his people. As the husband, it's, what does Ephesians 6 tell us? Husbands, love your wives and be willing to give your life for her just as Christ gave his life for the church. There are pictures that we're to be showing out to other people. And that's because God has sovereignly initiated these covenants. Fourthly, it's more than just an emotional agreement It is to be lived out in action. Going back to our example one more time. There are days that I don't feel married. There are days where I don't feel like being committed to certain aspects. There's days whenever my wife makes me mad and I don't feel like loving her like I'm supposed to. But it's not just an emotional agreement. And again, why do we see marriages break apart? Because it was an emotional agreement to begin with. Those emotions leave, so they break the covenant that they put themselves into. But it's more than that. It's it's to be lived out in action. It wasn't just an emotional agreement that God made with his people. And it wasn't just an emotional agreement that his people had toward him. They were to live in a specific way and act in a specific way. And God promised that he would respond in a specific way. And then lastly, the conclusions of a covenant are based upon the actions of the covenant parties. I said said we weren't going to use the example again, but marriage... It doesn't matter what my second cousin thinks about my marriage. There are people that I knew that weren't happy with the person that I married. They weren't happy that I married Lindsay. But our covenant has nothing to do with them. If they don't like it, so be it. If they don't want to love me because of it, then it's not my problem. And in that same way, the conclusions in the covenant with God and his people were that Satan had no say in those covenants. He had no, he had no, there was no way that he could weasel his way into the covenant that God had made with his people. Satan couldn't break the covenant that God made with his people. Now we do see places where Satan dealt with his people and caused his people to break the covenant. But... It's not based upon someone outside of the covenant. 
The conclusions are based upon the parties that are in the covenant. The covenants that we see made with individuals in Scripture are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He is both the initiator and the fulfillment of all the covenants that we fail. And we see these specifically in Isaiah 52, which Samuel, if you'll look up Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. And Lindsay, if you'll look up 1 Timothy 2, verse number 5. And just a heads up, there's also a, a section of Scripture that we're going to look at at the end that plays this out probably better than, than, well, not better than any other text, but it plays it out very aptly. 52, verse 13 through 15. It's on the first page of your paper right there. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high, as many were a stone, a stone, that be his visage was so married more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him for that which had not been told, then shall they see, and that which they had not heard, shall they consider. And Lindsay, if you will, read First Timothy 2 and verse number 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, these texts go together. I know that I, I know even for myself, I was I was taught to memorize that verse in Second uh, Timothy or First Timothy early on in my life. I was probably three or four years old, and I and I had had the ability to quote that verse. But that verse is telling us that there's one mediator. What does a mediator do? A mediator is a go-between. A mediator. Fixes a relationship on a legal document. And it says that Christ is the one mediator between God and men. And we saw that in Isaiah chapter number 52. He said again, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And this is where we see the connection. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Just a spoiler alert. That's talking about us. He's talking about the Gentiles. You see, Christ was the mediator between God and man. God's purpose in this covenant 
while these covenants were worked through a specific people, God's covenant was with mankind. That's the reason that we see in covenant working in the Old Testament, people like Rahab and people like Ruth and people like a mixed multitude that left Egypt. God's purpose in every one of these covenants was to draw a people to himself. And he's saying that he's going to sprinkle many nations. People who've not seen him are going to see him. People who've not heard about him are going to hear about him. Because he is the mediator of that new covenant. He is the initiator of the original covenant. And he is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Covenant. Secondly, does the concept of covenants flow through Scripture? And the fact of the matter is they do. The overarching storyline of the Bible is a covenant that God has made with His people. You can't look anywhere in Scripture from the first page to the last page and not see God covenanting with His people. All of God's covenant, though, it it keys in on his redemptive plan. Every historical account in the Old Testament and every application in the New Testament are pointing to the redemptive plan of God. They're pointing to God redeeming a people through the person of Christ. I challenge you. And this is this is what 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 made a lot of the Bible come alive for me, especially stories in the Old Testament, was reading the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is undeniable proof that God has worked with people using covenants. You can't can't read Hebrews and deny that God is working through his people and with his people. It's, It's, you just, you can't do it. Unless you tear Hebrews out of your Bible or get a translation that took Hebrews out, then you, you have no way to deny it. In Scripture specifically, and this is where the little graph, if you want to fill some of this in on the graph, you can. You don't have to. It's meant to be filled in, but I didn't put lines in, so that was my fault. But these streams that we see on the bottom of the page are all the covenants that God made with people in the Old Testament. And they're all going to end up in one place. They're all pointing to one place. Just as the streams of any country, the rivers of any country all go back to the ocean, all the covenants in Scripture go back to one covenant. They all point to one covenant. You may not see that in covenant clearly, but you know where it's going because it's the same. It looks alike. And you can see the way that it's heading. Specifically in Scripture, and, and I, I put down a few of the covenants that we can see in Scripture on, on this page along with some of the verses that go through with them. But specifically in Scripture, we're going to see the Scripture that God uses where we see covenants dealt with. We're going to see the situations that led up to these covenants. We're going to see the stipulations of these covenants, and we're going to see the sign that God gave for these covenants. 
The first one that we can see on the bottom of the page is Adam, and he would be the first stream. The covenant with Adam we see made in Genesis chapter number 6, verse number 18, and in Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 15. God told Adam, I want you to tend the garden, to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. In Genesis chapter number 3, he gives them the promise of the gospel. He says that you will have a seed and that seed will crush the serpent's head. <clears throat> Moving on a little ways, we get to Noah. God had entered that relationship with Adam and by default, he had entered that relationship with all living creatures. But as we've seen in Romans, even before the law was given to Moses, there was sin in the world. It said that they didn't sin in the same way Adam sinned, but because of Adam's sin, there was sin in the world. And God had given them a way to atone for that sin. Abel did it. We've seen that. Cain did not. We've seen that. So we get up to Noah. God, looking at the evil that humanity has brung forth, comes in, gives Noah or shows Noah grace, sends the flood, destroys the world. And that's where we find Noah. Sin had enveloped the whole world. God sends the floods. He purges the world of wickedness. He makes a way for the creation to be restored in a sense. And he gives Noah basically the same command that he gave Adam. He said, I want you to have kids, basically. <laughs> he said, I want you to repopulate the earth. You're going to tend it just like Adam did. There's going to be some differences now. Animals are, animals are going to be scared of you. Animals are going to start to eat each other. There's going to be differences now, but I want you to do the same thing I told Adam to do. God does that. He, he gives them that covenant with, with, Mo, with Noah. And we see Noah even making a sacrifice when he first comes off the ark to signify this covenant. The stipulations of this covenant, there weren't any. It was unconditional. The covenant that God made with Noah was grounded in the promise that he would never destroy the world until redemption was fully accomplished. God said, I'm not going to destroy the world like this again. I'm not going to flood the world to, to restore creation to a, to a, basically to a, to a place that wasn't so sinful. He said, I'm not doing that with a flood. I'm doing that with a person next time. And the sign that he gave was a rainbow. And we see with each of these covenants, we see, again, the scripture, the situation, the stipulation, and the sign. The sign was a rainbow. If we look at a rainbow, a rainbow is a weapon. A bow is a weapon. You have a bow and an arrow. If you, every time you look at a rainbow, though, that bow is pointed in the same way. It's pointed to heaven. What God was saying to Noah 
is that next time I pour out wrath for on sin, it's going to be pointed in a different direction. It's not going to be pointed at the earth. It's going to be pointed at me. He was given a sign that symbolized the coming of Christ. Now, Noah may not have known all the details, but we saw this, this veiled covenant of Christ, the veil being pulled back just a little bit. So he shows Noah, he says, this rainbow, this is a sign that I'm not going to destroy the world through a flood again, but I'm going to send someone to redeem the world. And that was that covenant that he made with Noah. Again, it's pointing to the same place. We move a little bit farther down. The next place where we see a river or a stream meeting into this is with Abraham. God enters a partnership or a relationship with Abraham. He promises Abraham that he will have a huge family. His descendants would be more than the stars in the sky. That he would give him a land. He would give him a people. He would give him a seed and that all the nations would be blessed through him. The promise God was making, again, we can see in Christ because all the nations were blessed. But even past that, that covenant with Abraham, we can see played out even in Joseph practically. Joseph was in Egypt and the nations were blessed because Egypt had enough grain to get through the famine. So we see that practically. But but in its completion, in its fulfillment, it's in Christ. Because Christ would be a descendant of Abraham and all the nations are going to be blessed because of Christ. The scriptures we find this in is in Genesis chapter number 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. Noah was about not destroying the world again. It had spiraled downward anyway. After Noah gets off the ark, we see the Tower of Babel where God overthrows man's sinfulness again. He separates their languages. And just, just a short commercial, God separated the languages at the Tower of Babel. That was part of the Old Covenant. If you move up to the day of Pentecost, what did people start doing? They started hearing what one person was saying in their own language. God restored that. He started where he separated languages. He brought languages back together under the new covenant of Christ. So just a quick commercial. We'll move on. The stipulation of Abraham's covenant was that he had to follow God wherever he led. And he had to walk blamelessly. And we know Abraham did not walk blamelessly. Abraham was not the guy you would pick if you were going to find somebody to be a good example. And my goodness, his grandkids were even worse. But who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's who everybody says it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These really bad people. The sign that God gave Abraham in Genesis 17 was the sign of circumcision. Circumcision, without being too graphic, is a cutting away of the flesh. Basically, what God was saying is, I'm going to take away this part of you so that when you look at yourself, you can remember that you're part of my people. 
That was what it was for. They knew that they were part of God's people because they were circumcised. They were circumcised to say, hey, I'm part of God's people. And what do we see today? We have that in baptism. We can look at baptism and say, I've been buried with Christ and resurrected to new life. Whereas they would look at circumcision and say, God has decided to cut us away, to cut our sin away from us, to be a God to us. It wasn't a full death, but it was a partial death. Circumcision was the sign for Abraham. Moving a little bit farther, we come to Moses. Moses is there, and he is part of that same covenant that was made to Abraham in a sense because he brings the people of God out of a foreign land back into their land. He performs an exodus. It's, it's, it's really a, a great picture of redemption. And even on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, in talking to Moses and Elijah, he says that he explains to them the exodus that he was about to happen. Basically, he was about to bring his people out of sin. So we see the picture of that here with Moses. But the stipulations of this covenant with Moses where he brought them out and he made them his people and he gave them his law. And the Bible says it was committed unto them the oracles of God. You don't find scripture out, outside of the law of Moses. Moses started it. God said, you're going to do what I tell you to do. You're going to live how I tell you to live. You're going to be my people to the world and I'm going to speak through you to the world. There were prophets. Jonah went to Nineveh. God used Jonah to speak to Nineveh. And again, so, we see this same theme of Christ, this same theme of the covenant played out in all these places that we won't get into. It's hard not to. It's like scattering all around as, as, as the words even come out of your mouth. But we see that with Moses. He made this covenant on Mount Sinai. God showed up in a big way. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave Moses the law. And he even put Moses in a rock and passed by him. He did all these things for Moses. And he gave them a sign, which was the Sabbath. And by default, the Passover. But the sign that he gave to Moses specifically was the Sabbath. We can find that in Exodus chapter number 31, verses 12 through verse number 18. This is what set the children of Israel apart. The rest of the world didn't stop on a day. The children of Israel did. And that's why it said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That was what made the children of Israel different. It was that day of rest. And we see that in Christ. Hebrews chapter number four says there remains therefore a rest to the people of God. He said the Sabbath is still here, but the Sabbath is a person now. So we see Christ played out. We see that veil pulled back a little bit farther. Moving on from Moses, we see David. And these these aren't the only covenants that God made, but these are the main covenants that, that God made throughout Scripture. These are the covenants of the Old Testament. 
with David. David was a king over Israel, and the promise that God made to David was that his descendants would rule over Israel. And they did. Granted, only one of them <laughs> ruled over a full kingdom. But we see again, they, they, they did not keep the covenant that God made with them. Over and over and over, they failed. God guaranteed something in each and every one of these covenants. And in each and every one of these covenants, God had to step in and fulfill it himself. If you, if you real quickly, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter number 15, make sure everybody is, is seeing this. Because this is why it's played out in each and every one of these covenants in some way, some shape, or some form. Genesis chapter number 15. And this is, this is weird to somebody who doesn't understand what is being done here? From an outsider's perspective, this is, seems like a strange passage of Scripture. Um, I even was, I was watched, listened to a, somebody today talking about, from a, from, it was somebody that would have been in a secular place, and they were just talking about some of the weird stories in the Bible. But in Genesis chapter number 15, verse 7 through verse number 21, something happens. And if, you're, if your Bible has headings like mine, You see over chapter number seven, or verse number seven, the covenant renewed. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham failed. He said, I'm going to go down to Egypt, even though God didn't tell me to go there. I'm going to lie about my wife being my sister, even though God told me not to lie. He failed. He messed up the covenant. God, at that point in time, when, when Abraham went to Egypt, God was released from the covenant with Abraham. Abraham broke the covenant. God was released. He didn't have to do a thing. Just like Adam and Eve broke the covenant that God made with them. God was not obligated to do a thing for Adam and Eve. He could have just destroyed the world, started over right then. But every time God makes a covenant with people, and every time those people break the covenant, God steps in and fulfills their side too. Chapter number, verse number seven says, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took Unto him all these things and divided them in the midst. He cut them in half and laid each piece one against another, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So what we have is Abraham, he he takes three of each of these animals and he cuts them in half and he lays them out. Basically, there's a bloody pathway now. And Abraham's there. He's waiting on God. His birds start to fly around this stuff. Abraham runs off, runs, drives away the birds. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, an horror of great darkness fell upon him. 
And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Sound familiar? This was the consequence. Abraham wanted to go down to Egypt, so God said, your descendants are going down to Egypt too. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And he did that. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. What happened? Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, to the, to, in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, and in iniquity of the Amorites, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thee, unto thy seed, have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates, and the Kidnites and the Kizites and the Kemodites and the Hittites and the Perzites and the Ramphites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Jebusites. Basically, God's saying, I'm giving you all this land. He said, you're going to have to wait 400 years. And God's purpose behind that, he said, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He said, I'm not ready to judge the Amorites yet, so I'm not sending you in there to take over their land yet. But when their iniquity is full, you will. God was even showing mercy to the Amorites through Abraham. But what we see in this section of Scripture, the key is in verse 17. He says, and it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. What was supposed to happen is God was supposed to call Abraham through those split animals. Those split animals signified Abraham's breaking of the covenant. There was an animal for every time that Abraham had broken God's covenant with him. And Abraham was going to have to walk through to restore that covenant with God. But in verse 17... Abraham goes into a deep sleep, verse number 12. Verse 17, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp pass through the pieces. And then God makes a promise to Abraham, even though he had failed on his side of the covenant. God told Abraham, you don't have to come to me. I'm coming to you. If you look at Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Jacob has the birthright of that covenant. That's what that was. That was the, the sign that God had given. That was the birthright. It wasn't necessarily material blessings. It was saying, hey, you're going to be the one from which the seed comes. That's what Esau didn't care about. He didn't care about the spiritual side. He just wanted porridge. Jacob received the birthright. He was the one that the seed came through. God made that covenant with Jacob. What did Jacob do? Held God. And you find Jacob going through a town called Bethel. He goes into a deep sleep. And what happens? There's a ladder. 
and you see angels descending. What God was saying to Jacob is you don't have to climb to me. I'm coming to you. All throughout Scripture, every one of these covenants, we see God coming to His people. If we, if we don't look at Scripture the way that God has given it to us, we miss all of this. We miss what God has given to us. So how, thirdly, how, thirdly and I'll, I'll try to move quickly through this, but how does the concept of a covenant help us understand Scripture? If we don't understand the covenants, then the story is not going to fit together. We're not going to understand why in the world we have all this stuff in the Old Testament. What is there for? And we, in, in, in our own minds, will say, well, maybe God was doing this here and doing this there and doing this here and acting this way over here, making an example of this guy over here and giving us a sign that we should do this, like live like this over here and we shouldn't eat bacon over here because God said not to eat bacon to these people. That's what we have a habit of doing. But if we look at the covenants that God made as pointing to Christ, the story fits together. It makes sense. Why did Jacob get sold into slavery? Or Joseph gets sold into slavery? Because God intended on making sure that his covenant seed lived. And he intended on fulfilling his promise that the nations would be blessed. Why did he so not kill Jacob? Because God intended on Jacob having a seed. Why did Moses bring the children out of Israel out of Egypt? Because God said, you're going to have a seed and you're going to have a land. God, all the time throughout the Old Testament, is fulfilling the covenants himself. He's showing us pictures that he is doing this himself. When man fails, it points us to the one who won't fail. The covenants of the Old Testament, the covenant of the New Testament, it's the backbone of Scripture. If you rip out a backbone, you've got pieces laying all over the place. They can't do anything. They don't mean anything. You can try and make sense of them, but you can't. But because I've got a spine, I can walk around. I'm not paralyzed. I'm not incapable to do things. I can I can participate in actions and activities. I can make stuff happen. I can build things. I can go places because I've got a spine. If you take these out of the scripture, you're taking the spine from scripture. Yes. It's still there. You can still see it. But all of its activity you've made incapable. You've thrown an Old Testament that makes no sense at people. And then you have questions from people, well, why would God talk about this? Why does God, what, what in the world does the ark have to do with anything? Why would God even do that? Well, if we look at it from a covenant perspective, we can see why. Yes. The ark was a picture of God, a picture of Christ. The word for pitch that they put on the ark is the same word for atonement. Mm-hmm. Noah built an ark for the world. The world didn't get on it, but that wasn't Noah's fault. Noah preached 130 years. Christ came. He died for the world. If the world doesn't get on it, that's not his fault. But they've been given the opportunity. All of these covenants show us Christ. All of these people show us Christ. If we take out the backbone, we're not going to understand it. 
purpose for all of it is so that we understand that God throughout history from the beginning of time has always been about the same thing. It's always been about bringing people to himself even when he had to go get them himself. Noah, he went and got him. Abraham, he went and got him. Jacob, he pulled him out. David, he went and got him. Every place you see, every person God used, God goes and gets them. Because none of us come to Him. With us, God didn't change the way that He dealt with us any way that He did it different. God doesn't change. He went and got Ruth, pulled her out of Moab. And each and every one of us, He went and got us. He pulled us out of where we were at. He brought us to Himself. And He did it all through Christ. Every one of these covenants, God fulfills. He does the work every time. The new covenant is what we see in the New Testament. Christ came. The new covenant, the New Testament is the culmination of God's saving work. It's the fulfillment. It's the substance to the shadow. He promised to make an everlasting covenant with his people, and he did it in Christ. He promised to write the law upon their hearts, and he does it through Christ. He brings complete forgiveness of sin, just like he promised through Christ. And the Spirit empowers his people to love and obey his commandments and live under the rule of their rightful king, Jesus Christ. He has brought everything back in Christ. And we see this in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. That's what he said he would do. The text we read at the beginning. The new covenant covenant is explicitly introduced in the law, in the prophets. And every time it's introduced, it ends in complete failure. Every one of the covenants God introduced ends in failure. But the new covenant, it didn't end in failure. God made a covenant with Moses. Moses failed. The mediator of the old covenant is what Hebrews calls Moses. Moses failed. God made a covenant with Abraham. The mediator of that covenant, he failed. Jeremiah tells us that God made a covenant with his servant. Christ came as a servant. And he didn't fail. He fulfilled it. Every one of God's people who who had been throughout history had all been covenant breakers. The curses of those covenants came upon them. Abraham said, because you did what what you did, the curse of that is people are going to go into bondage for 400 years. They broke the covenant to David. They went into bondage in Babylon. Every time they break a covenant, they go into bondage. We all broke the covenant. But Christ took our bondage. He paid our debt. He reconciled back us back to God. He is the one that fulfilled not only his covenant, but he fulfilled every other covenant that was ever given. It all ended up, it all pulled right there in Christ. He is the culmination of God's saving work to his creation. The stipulation to this covenant the only one there is no stipulation it's unconditional 
It's the covenant of grace. It's undeserved. Nothing we can do to work for it. Nothing we can do to get it because both the promise and the fulfillment is found in God himself. We can't look into ourselves to fix the problem with us, inside of us. The problem is us. I can't look in me to fix the problem in me. I have to look outside of me. When I look at my salvation, I can't look at me. I've got to look outside of me. When I look for my assurance, I can't look in me. I've got to look outside of me. And that outside of me is Christ because he came to us. And God has given us a sign of this new covenant. And we read that in Luke chapter 20 and verse number 22, or Luke chapter 22 and verse number 20, whichever one it was. Christ is sitting there at a table with his people. What does he do? He takes bread, he blesses it, he says, Behold, this is my body. Broken for you. And he breaks that bread. He takes the cup. He said, behold, this is my blood given for you. And he hands the cup to each and every one of those covenant breakers. The Lord's Supper is the sign of our new covenant. Every time that we sit down to partake of the Lord's Supper... We should never be looking inward. It should always point us outward. If I come in and the Lord's Supper is being presented and I've been sinful that week, I'm a prime candidate for it because I'm a covenant breaker. But he's not. He gave us a physical sign, something tangible, that every time we break into that bread, we remember every time I broke a covenant, he was broken for me. Every time we take a sip of that juice, we remember every time that I spill out into everything, he spilled his blood for me. That was the whole thing. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's whole point and telling the Corinthian church that they were taking of it unworthily is because they had made it a joke. They were having parties. He wasn't saying that just because they had sinned that week that they couldn't take it. He was saying, don't mess up this sign that God has given you. In Galatians, he told the Jews, the Jews were fussing about circumcision. Paul said, that's over with. You're messing up the sign. And because you're messing up the sign, he very explicitly says, I wish you would just go ahead and cut the whole member off. He said, just finish the job. If you're going to mess it up, finish the job. Paul was explicit that the signs were given for a purpose. And it's our job not to mess them up. That's it. They were given to us. As a remembrance, every time, and that's why, what did he say? When you do this, why do we do it? Remembrance of me. Every time, it's remembrance of me. Not remembrance of you. Not remembrance of the sins that you committed this week. Not remembrance of the person you were before you got saved. Me. Points us back to the covenant, the mediator between God and man. That's what it's there for. 
That's why God gave it to the church. It wasn't something to shy away from. It was something to point us to the one who fulfilled the covenant. That's what it was for. Every time. Anytime. He said, whenever you do it. Anytime you do it. Remember me. Just look at me. Remember. Then that's it. That's it. We look at every time there's a rainstorm, thunderstorm. There's been quite a few of those here lately. You look outside and you see a rainbow. God's not saying you better quit sinning or I'm going to destroy the world again. He's saying I'm not going to destroy the world again because I poured my wrath out on my son. That was a sign given to Noah. And we see it today. And just like that, that new covenant had a sign. It had scripture that went with it. We saw it in Jeremiah 31. The situation was us, covenant breakers. The stipulations, there weren't any. Just come. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. That Sabbath that they broke, Christ was it. We find rest in him. The wrath was poured out on him. He's the Lord over us. Every single one of them is Christ. It's all Christ. And that's what we looked at last week. The Bible's about Christ. The covenant's about Christ. The Bible. The Bible's about Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to be in your house again. Thank you for everything that you have done for us. Together. What a blessing. What a privilege. Uh, call your attention this evening once again to the book of Romans. The book of Romans chapter number 8. The book of Romans chapter number 8. We're last Sunday night, Jeffrey covered verse number 5. But we're going to go back and pick up verse number 5 and deal with verse number 5 down through verse number 8. And we're going to look along these lines this evening on understanding the unbelieving mind through contrast. Understanding the unbelieving mind through contrast. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5. The Bible says here, For they that are after the flesh... Do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. Lord, again, this evening, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to meet together. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together corporately. Uh, We thank you for those that are faithful 
to you and faithful to your word and faithful to be here together around your word. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you bless them. I pray, Lord, for those that aren't able to be here tonight for whatever reason, we pray, God, that you would touch them also. And, Lord, I pray and ask you that you would take this church and make of it exactly what you would have it to be. Lord, I pray that if we ever get in the way, get us out of the way. Lord, I pray that you would give us direction, give us, uh, Lord, that guidance that we need as a body of believers. And Lord, help us to remain faithful to your word. Help us to remain faithful to the scriptures. And Lord, in doing so, I know, uh, Lord, have confidence that you will guide us as you'd have us to go. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we would Lord, even as Brother Ricky mentioned before service, Lord, that when all of this stuff that's going on in our nation is over with, Lord, that we would be able to have things that would reach out into this community. Lord, what a blessing it will be the day that we see the first soul born again because of the work that you've begun here in this place and with this people and Lord we ask you again that you would take your word do with it what only you can do and speak to our hearts for it's in Jesus name we pray amen and amen Uh, these verses make it very clear that there are only two kinds of people in the world There is a sharp line of distinction that is drawn in this passage of Scripture. According to this passage, there are those who have been justified and those who are still under the condemnation of God. There are those that are according to the flesh and those that are according to the Spirit. There are those who have set their mind on the things of the flesh, and there are those who have set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul wants us to be crystal clear that if we have been justified by faith, you will be sanctified. If you genuinely are justified by faith, there is sanctification for you. And there is sanctification working in you. And there is ultimate sanctification that you and I will have when we see him face to face. We know not what we shall be, but we know when we shall behold him, We shall be like him. What a blessing to know uh, that we have a promise of God. That even though we fail him, even though we, we do not walk according to the things that we should walk, there will be a day when it will be complete in us and we will be like him. In fact, the, the ultimate outcome for the child of God 
is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. And Paul's going to deal with that as we get on down into this chapter. But understand that as we look at this, everyone who has escaped the condemnation of God has undergone a radical work of God in their person and in their life. Uh, You cannot have somebody as big as God move in and it might not make a change. You can't have you can't have what we dealt with this morning. You can't have the the matter of reconciliation happen to you and it not make a difference. It makes a change and Paul deals with that. Paul lays out a clear contrast so that there is no confusion for his readers. There is a back and forth that he does in these verses between the two classes. There's a clear, there's clearly in this not a third class. Uh, Years ago, uh, there was much talk about the carnal Christian. There is no such animal. Uh, You're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. There is no, there is no in between. There is no straddling the fence. And Paul is very clear as we walk down through this passage of scripture. It was said that there was actually three classes of people. First, there was those that were not Christians. Second, there were those who were Christians. And third, there were those who claimed to be Christians, uh, but were still walking according to the flesh. There is a change. I'm not saying that you and I do not battle with things in our life. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there is a heart change that happens in a child of God. There is a difference that takes place in a child of God. There's something that happens there that causes that child of God to realize they are wrong when they do those things. The outline in this passage of scripture is very simple. Paul basically outlined this scripture in such a way that uh, those who want to take time to outline everything and there's nothing wrong with that, it should be done. But Paul made it very simple to outline this passage of scripture, these verses that we're looking at tonight. And the outline of this scripture would be In verse number 5, there are two mindsets. Verse number 5, there are two mindsets. In verse number 6, there are two destinies. Verse number 7 through 9, there are two dispositions. So Paul lays it out so that there's two mindsets, there's two destinies, and there's two dispositions. Let's consider as we look at verse number 5, let's consider the two different mindsets that he shows us here in this passage of Scripture. In verse number 5, the Bible said, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Everyone in the world is of one of these two mindsets. Paul tells us, for those who are according to the flesh, 
have set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those that are after the Spirit have set their mind on the things of the Spirit. They are governed by their flesh rather than the Spirit of God. The flesh, if you will. When we consider what he's talking about here in this passage of Scripture, when he says that they that are after the flesh, those that are after the flesh, when he's dealing with that matter of after the flesh, he's referring to their carnal appetites, their sinful desires, their worldly pursuits, their material pleasures, their secular beliefs, their self-interest, and their self-promotion. That is carnally minded. If people are caught up in carnal appetites and sinful desires and worldly pursuits and material pleasures and secular beliefs and and self-interest and self-promotion, they are after the things of the flesh. They're not after the things of the Spirit. Their mind is set on these things and they have a worldly mindset. And we see that all around us. You don't have to look very far to see that happening and see that going on. Where Paul makes the statement here, he said, of the Spirit, the contrast that he draws here, and he said, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Where he's talking about of the Spirit, it notes a stark contrast that he's drawing between these two mindsets. There's a contrast in the middle of verse number 5. Paul makes it clear the distinction by using the word but. Look at what he says in verse number 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. He's, He's noting by putting that conjunction in there He's noting the contrast between the two. He's given us that that marker of that distinct contrast. He's now referring, in the latter part of verse number 5, he's now referring to the believer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. There's a difference, there's a change, there's a contrast that takes place. There's something that happens when you become born again. There's something changes in your life once you've been born again. We all entered into the world living according to the flesh. Children live according to the flesh. They live according to the desires of the flesh. That's the reason you have to instruct your children. And you have to instruct them in the things of God. Why? Because they do mind the things of the flesh. Because it is their nature. If they've not yet been born again, they are concerned about themselves. Every one of us. Before we were born again, we were concerned about us. 
We wanted to take care of us. We didn't want anybody taking our stuff. We didn't want anybody messing with what was ours. It was all about us. That was the mindset we had. We came into the world that way. It is only by the new birth that the truth of regeneration that we see here in this passage of Scripture is transferred from the fleshly realm to the spiritual realm. Things become different. You look at things in a whole new light. You see things differently. When you get born again, if you've been truly converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have seen things differently. That does not mean that you did everything different the day you got saved, but you saw things differently. You looked at them differently. There were things that you may not have considered to be very wrong that now you consider to be wrong. There may have been things that you did not consider to be so much right that you consider to be right now because there has been a change of mind. There's been a change of the mind that you and I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been, we've been changed from the physical and the fleshly realm to the spiritual realm where we now live in the spirit. If you and I have had that change, although we may not be doing all the things we should do, and although we may not be not doing all the things we should not do, we still are walking in a spiritual realm. We still know what's right and what's wrong because God reveals that to us from his word. There's no wonder that the Bible tells us that we have no need that any man should teach us. The Holy Spirit of God will guide us, what? Into all truths. He's going to guide us into those truths. You and I do not necessarily need anyone to teach us. Howbeit, it is great when there are others around us and when we help each other along by what we see in Scripture. That's a great, that's a great blessing that we have to meet together corporately and be able to be taught from the Scriptures. There are many times that I come to church. There are many times that I come here and something is said or something is read, or something is sung, or or just something that someone is sharing about what God did in their life changes my outlook. And it adds to that spiritual realm in which I am walking. There is two different, two different mindsets in verse number five. Now look in verse number six, if you will. The Apostle Paul makes this statement. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Paul turns from looking at the mindset. 
And he tells us in verse number 6 that there are two different destinies. As we move to this verse of Scripture, we see the contrast from the mindset that takes us to the life to two totally different directions, two totally different ways that we're headed. The Bible tells us here, it says that the one whose mindset is according to the flesh will end up in death. He says, for to be carnally minded is death. You and I know this to be a fact. You and I that are saved by the grace of God definitely know that this is a fact. Those who are carnally minded are on a road to death. What does the Bible tell us the wages of sin is? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Understanding what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture, that there are two destinies. He said to be carnally minded is death, but... There's that conjunction again. But to be spiritually minded is what? Life and peace. The blessing of this that you and I see as the children of God is that we have changed from a direction that led to death, led to that eternal death, and we've entered into not just life, but we've entered into peace. What, what did he tell us in the very beginning when we were looking at, at the book of Ephesians? What, were, what was one of the things that happened in the book of Ephesians? You and I were brought to peace with God. We, we do not just have peace of God. We have peace with God. There now remaineth no more condemnation for us. There is no more condemnation. There is no more wrath. Those who are carnally minded, those who are fleshly minded, those who are still walking in their flesh are still under the condemnation of God. The book of John chapter number 3 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He goes on to tell us that those who do not know God, they are still under condemnation. He goes on to tell us that Christ did not come to bring condemnation. We were already under condemnation. He, brought to, he, he came to bring life and peace. And that's what he gave us as the children of God. The second half of Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 6 is a total contrast just like verse number 5 was. It refers to a true believer who has been born again. This life refers to that eternal life that is to come. That life is referring to that eternal life that is to come. 
there is a complete difference in the destiny of our lives that is ahead of us who belong to God. And then, as I've already said, we have peace. We've been given peace. And again, it refers not to the peace of God, but it refers to the peace with God. This peace refers to the eternal state of here it is. It's the same author that we were looking at this morning. It, it brings us to that eternal state of that doctrine that we've been looking at on Sunday mornings. Reconciliation. Paul is dealing here that peace is referring to the eternal state of reconciliation and what we dealt with this morning, our acceptance with God. The acceptance that we have with God. What a blessing to know that we have this as the children of God. These two mindsets lead us in two different directions and end up in two destinations. There could not be more a more dramatic difference than death and life. You can't draw a more dramatic difference. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. He's telling us those that are carnally minded have death. Those that are spiritually minded have life. There could not be any more dramatic, there could not be any more any more distance between the two. There could not be any more difference between the two. There's death for those that are carnally minded. There's peace and life for those that are spiritually minded. Every person's life is headed in one or two of these directions. You, you can't, there's no in-between. You're either headed one direction or you're headed the other. And, and, and may I just remind you that that spiritual mindedness is not something that you developed on your own. That's not something that you woke up one morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to be spiritually minded. That being spiritual minded came because of the quickening of the Holy Spirit of God which moved inside of you and now resides in you as the children of God. You became spiritually minded because the Spirit of God moved in. You didn't become spiritually minded because you decided to be spiritually minded. There are many people who think they're walking after the Spirit and they're walking after spiritual things because they're doing the traditions of men. They may think that they're being spiritual because they got up and went to church this morning. But unless God has changed their heart, they did that on their own and they did not do it because the Spirit of God was living in them. There is a difference. There are those that would try to mimic spirituality. But all those that are trying to mimic spirituality know 
in the depths of their heart that they do not have the real thing because it's too hard. They're having to keep up with this and they're having to keep up with that. And when things get difficult, when things get to the point to where it is crushing them, that real mind comes out. What you are walking in comes out when life becomes crushing. When life becomes difficult, the reality of where you stand with God will be made evident in your life. You'll either, you'll either walk away because the walk got too hard for you or you'll continue to walk resting in the fact that Christ is walking for you. It'll be one of the two. Every person in life is headed to one of these two outcomes, either eternal life or eternal death. Now let's look at verse number 7 and uh, through verse number 9. In fact, let's just look at verse number 7 and verse number 8. Verse number 7, the Bible said, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. There are two dispositions In verse number 7 and verse number 8, we see the disposition of the unbeliever. There's the disposition of the unbeliever. This disposition, if you want to think about it this way, this disposition means the heart or the nature or the inner person or the bend of their life. It means the heart, the nature, the inner person, or the bend of their life. There are three things to note in verse number seven and verse number eight that show the disposition of the unbeliever. First of all, look in verse number seven. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The disposition, the heart, or the direction, or the inner person that is the unbeliever is enmity against God. You and I may ask God why sometimes. But we ask God why with wanting to understand how things can be different in our life. We're not asking God why in a sarcastic, in a, in a, in a, in a bad way, but we're asking God why because we want to understand. We want to have an understanding. Those that are carnal began to question God and they began to question God with an arrogant attitude. God, why are you doing this? How many times has the question been asked, 
how can a loving God let this happen or let that happen? And you and I may ask that question sometimes genuinely wanting to understand just as a child asks their parents, why? Why can't I do this? Why can't I go here? Why can't this happen? But the disposition that we find of the unbeliever, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. The carnal mind, your carnal mind and my carnal mind wars against God. But the difference is, you and I have had the old man die and the new man has come alive. So we're not at enmity with God any longer. Remember the scripture we looked at this morning said that the enmity was gone. It's done away with. There is no more enmity. Why? Because we're not warring against God. There's not a war going on against God. We may not always do the things we should do, but in our minds the Spirit of God is telling us This is the direction you should go. This is what you should do. This is who you should talk to. This is who you shouldn't talk to. God is directing us. But the disposition of the unbeliever is not only that the carnal mind is enmity against God, but the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. It's kind of interesting when we look at this. Look at that verse of Scripture. This, this kind of jumped out at me when I was studying this. In verse number 7 it said, Because the carnal mind is empty against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, look at what he says, neither indeed can be. How many times have you heard it said, and how many times have I possibly said it myself in the past years of my life, that If we could have kept the law, we could have been okay. But you and I could not. The Bible tells us here that the fleshly mind, the carnal mind, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It can. The carnal mind cannot be subject to to the law of God. No matter how hard it tries, it will fail the law of God. And if it were able, and here's where we need to get to, if it were able to keep everything, if if that rich man would have come to Christ and said, I've kept all of these from my youth, when he he made that statement and, and he lifted himself up in pride, the problem is, Not so much that we can't be a morally good person. The problem is we cannot do anything about our original sin. We cannot do anything about what happened to us in Adam in the Garden of Eden. We can't do anything about that. We can't change that. That's where we have to have Christ. Number one, you and I cannot meet, we can't even be morally good enough to have any standing before God. 
But even if we could, we could not do anything about our original sin. And because of that, our carnal mind is enmity with God. And it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Even when we think we're keeping all the law, we're not keeping all the law. You say, how do you know that? How many times have we had a thought that just with the snap of a finger entered into our mind and we did not entertain anything to bring it there? But that thought that entered our mind was a corrupt thought. How many times have we thought something in our mind just in an instant of time we thought something that we knew was wrong. You and I cannot control that. The Bible says that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. We cannot. Even, even if we wanted to purpose that we're going to do everything that we can do, our carnal mind will have something come up that will not be subject to the law of God. It can't be. The Bible tells us it's playing with us. Not only that, but he tells us, look at what he says in verse number 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot, what? Please God. The disposition of an unbeliever is that the carnal mind is enmity with God. The disposition of the unbeliever is that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And the disposition of the unbeliever is that therefore the carnal mind cannot please God. Our carnal mind, no matter how hard we wanted to concentrate, no matter how hard we wanted to try, our carnal mind cannot please God. And because of that, because of that, we are in a disposition with God. The disposition of the believer is this in verse number 9. Look at what he says in verse number 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Paul's telling us here in verse number 9, he says this, to be in the Spirit. In the Spirit. That being in the Spirit only happens one way. And that is by being in Christ. You cannot... Be in the Spirit if you're not in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you cannot not be in the Spirit. Why? Because when you were placed in Christ, you were given all of the Spirit of God. All of the Spirit of God. You cannot escape. As a child of God, you cannot escape the Spirit of God. He's there. 
He's going with you. He's going to abide with you. He's going to reside with you. You cannot shake the Spirit of God. To be in the Spirit means to be in Christ. You have been placed there. You have been placed there. Where? In Christ. You have been placed in Christ by the Spirit of God. When you are in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And you cannot escape that. You cannot escape it. It's nothing you can get away from. It's nothing you can get out of. You are in the Spirit of God. The believer's body is the royal residence of the Holy Spirit of God. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Paul says that the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. Therefore, you and I are in the Spirit. I want to give you a couple of things by conclusion. I want, to, I want us to draw some application from this passage of Scripture. To sum up these verses, the first half of verse number 5 refers to the unbeliever. The second half of verse number 5 refers to the believer. The first half of chapter number 6 refers to the unbeliever. The second half of chapter number, oh, verse number 6 refers to the believer. Verse number 7 and verse number 8 refer to the unbeliever. And verse number 9 refers to the believer. The reason that Paul stresses this in the middle of his teaching on sanctification. And by the way, that's where we're at. Paul is in the middle of his teaching on our sanctification. And the reason that he stresses this in the middle of our sanctification is so that every true believer... So that you and I understand that every true believer is in the Spirit. That every true believer is indwelt by the Spirit. And that every true believer is living according to the Spirit. And has set his mind on the things of the Spirit. I want to give you three points of application real quick. I want you to consider this. The first point of application is a self-examination. Every one of us needs to examine ourselves whether we are in the flesh or in the spirit. Examine ourselves. Are we in Adam or are we in Christ? Are we in the world and of the world or are we of Christ? Are we lost or are we saved? Are we unconverted or are we converted? It's easy when you consider what Paul's talking about. It's easy to understand whether you're saved or whether you're lost. How do you think? 
what thinking comes easy for you. And I'm not talking about being callous to the things of God and allowing yourself to walk out in the world for a, for a period of time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you do what is wrong, what's the first thought comes into your mind? God help me. You and I, and, and, and we've mentioned this before, when you and I sin as a child of God, we sin willfully. We sin determinedly. We sin because we choose to sin. And when we're done with that sin, what is the first thing that crosses your mind? Why in the world did I do that? You may, you may think, you may think, I'm going to have a little bit of pleasure in this sin for this period of time. But when that sin's over, what's the first thought? Why did I do that? That's the Spirit of God. And you don't have that if you're not His. Secondly, not only is there a self-examination, but there is a self-renunciation. There's a self-examination, but there is a self-renunciation. If you realize that you are living according to the flesh, then you need to repent and turn away from that carnal pursuit of desires that you have in your life. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. And you do that by renouncing that sin. You have a self-examination and we find out where we are in Christ. Are we in Christ or are we not in Christ? If we are in Christ and we realize that we are in Christ and we catch ourselves in a point of sin in our life, then we renounce that sin, we turn away from that sin, we repent of that sin and we walk forward with the Lord Jesus Christ. Did let me, let me be clear here. If we do find ourselves there, does it in any way change our acceptance before God? No. Your acceptance before God does not change. But if you do find yourself in a position where you've allowed something to creep into your life, you've allowed something to become part of your life, then it is time as the Spirit of God reveals that to you, it is time for you and I to renounce that and deny that and set that aside and repent of that and get back in line with God. You're not going to have the even, you're not even going to have the desire to do that. You're not even going to have the, the, the desire to renounce sin if God didn't produce that in you. And God doesn't produce that in you unless you are in the Spirit. There's the renunciation. You must renounce your old way of life. You must renounce your old way of doing things. You... you, you 
Have you renounced? Have we renounced our living for the kingdom of this world and turned to living for the kingdom of God? The first is the self-examination. The second is the renunciation. Thirdly, I want us to consider self-preservation. You say, that's contrary to Scripture. No, it's not. Having renounced our old way of life, we now present ourselves to Jesus Christ to live in that new life. Our presentation to God. We're, we're, we, we've renounced that old way, and when we've renounced that old way, we're presenting ourselves once again to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must submit. You and I, if we are going to be obedient to walking after the Spirit, you and I must submit to the law of God and live in obedience to the law of God. What is the law of God? I'm not just talking about just the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the law of God, the ordinances of God, the things, the mandates that God gives us. In verse number 8, it says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But in contrast to that, those that are in the Spirit, their goal in life is to please God. What pleases God? What is it that pleases God? Trusting Him and living for Him. We must continually, as the children of God, if we're walking in the Spirit, we will continually, continually present ourselves to God. What did Paul tell us in the book of Romans, chapter number 12 and verse number 1? I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, Paul is saying. He said, I beseech you, therefore, what? Brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service it's our reasonable service we must be like the priest of the Old Testament when the priest of the Old Testament went in to offer a sacrifice he first had to offer a sacrifice for himself we must present our lives on God's altar for God to use in any way that he chooses to use. In the Old Testament times, the priest presented a dead sacrifice. What did we say this morning that, that has happened with the Lord Jesus Christ? There is a New Testament, a new covenant. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the priest presented a dead sacrifice. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God beseeches us that we present what? A living sacrifice. God wants a living sacrifice. The Old Testament was a dead one. The New Testament, why is it 
that in the Old Testament it was dead and in the New Testament it's alive. Because we're in Christ. Because we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is alive. So we present ourselves a living sacrifice before God in our daily lives. May you and I, as the children of God, give careful thought on how we need to daily present ourselves to God. Lord, here I am. Use me today however you want to use me. I'm at your disposal. The reason I'm at his disposal is I have been bought with a price. I am not my own. And that is what is spiritual minded. Carnal minded doesn't even understand that. But the spiritual mind is a willingness to present yourselves to God a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Not that you're holy. He's holy. Jesus is holy. Present yourself to him in Jesus. Present yourself to him. Lord, let me do something in Christ today that will make a difference in someone else's life. Let me do something in Christ today that would cause others to see Christ in me, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege we've had to look into your word tonight. Thank you for the 